You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Acts 4, verse 5-31 The next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Anus the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priest family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he has he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you have crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing here before you healthy. This is this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them, threaten them against speaking to anyone in, his, in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about we have, what we have heard and seen. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, Why do the Gentiles rage, and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that each and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Good morning. 
Good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors, and so thankful to be here with you. Safe on the ground, back from a trip to New Orleans for work. So if you've never been there before, I'll tell you what I experienced. But it was, you know, good food everywhere. I'll tell you that much. I couldn't eat enough. But this morning we are in Acts chapter 4. If you do have your Bibles, I uh, encourage you to turn there um, so you can follow along with and, uh, and read through the text in verses 5 through 31. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hand and have some at the back table that are our gifts to you. Um, we're normally preaching through books of the Bible, and we're in Acts. And we're coming up on a story that is about boldness in witness, being a bold kingdom witness. And I want to pray this morning that God would be with us, that his spirit would teach us um, and give us clarity as we explore this passage. So would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful today that we have the opportunity to open up your word. I'm grateful that you give us this privilege to hear from you, to study and see what you've done in your church from the beginning of time and the way you continue to work in your world. God, give us wisdom and discernment. Give us eyes to see those things that we have not yet learned, hearts to receive and willingness to obey as you guide us and lead us and teach us this morning. And I ask all this in Christ's name. So as we've read through Acts, we're, we're talking about advancing of the kingdom. And we started in Acts, really in chapter 1, where in verse 8, God told the disciples, the apostles, that you're going to be my witnesses. It's very similar to the story in which we see in Matthew, where he, before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples to go into all the world and to make more disciples. To teach them everything that I've commanded you. And the question at hand is, what does it really look like to be a witness? What does it mean to be a bold witness? This, this passage in particular shows Peter and John after they've been arrested. Last week, Aaron spoke about the sermon, the healing and the sermon that Peter deliver, delivered. <clears throat> and immediately, they were arrested by the religious leaders at the time. Um, and it says that they're being a bold witness. But what does that mean for us? Maybe you're familiar with the phrase uh, that's often attributed to someone named Francis of Assisi, that we should preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Is that sufficient? Is that for us to be a bold witness by merely being a very good person who loves Jesus in this world? There's oftentimes we might find people claiming to be persecuted and having a witness for Christ based on any number of some political stance they might hold. Is that what it means for us to be a Christian in this world? And to be a witness? Is every opinion that a church chooses to stand behind the same thing as being a bold witness? Honestly, if we were really honest about it, there are times that some Christians might claim they're being witnesses for the gospel and being persecuted when they're really just being jerks. We can do that too. So we have to be mindful of what it means to actually be a witness for God and what it takes for us to be a witness. And what we see in this particular passage is that as 
God's people trust in the Holy Spirit, which God has given us, that God equips and empowers us to be bold kingdom witnesses. If we're to look at Peter and John as an example, then we can see that God empowers us when the moment is needed and necessary. There are four characteristics that I want to look through this morning with you, in which there are four characteristics of a bold kingdom witness. And the very first, uh, the very first characteristic is this, that a bold kingdom witness is empowered by the Holy Spirit, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's look again at what was read in verses 5 through 10. The next day, their elders, their rulers, their elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? So looking at five and six, let me just clearly point to the fact that the, the rulers think that whatever Peter and John are doing is a very big deal. We know that because we see who shows up. The important people don't all show up for some random dude who just happens to be preaching some random thing. The big names are showing up. Annas, the high priest, he's actually technically, it's kind of like a former president that's holding the title. We would still say Mr. President if, if George W. Bush or if uh, Barack Obama walked in the room, he's referred to as Mr. President. They still carry the title. Annas is actually the former high priest, chief priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the acting high priest. They're both there. That means, that means that's like Barack Obama coming out of the woodwork, like, what's happening? Hold on. I need to find out. Who's, who, who's talking about what? John and Alexander and all the members of the high priestly family are said to show up as if they're really, they're really interested in this, in this setup. There's little doubt that they have not heard the mention of Jesus' name. Matter of fact, this is the same crew that only weeks before handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. So only weeks earlier, they took Jesus, had him killed as a blasphemer, and now they're getting word that there's these guys out there in Solomon's colony near the temple preaching and healing people. And so they show up. They want to know, what authority are you preaching under? That's what they're asking. By what power or in what name have you done these things? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Jesus, <laughs> Peter answers the question right away. And he answers, and I like in the way he does it. He said, hey, if if we're being like charged because of this good deed we did, we healed the guy. If that's the reason, I just want you to know. And I want all of Israel to know what? That it was Jesus' power. But let's not miss the very beginning of this. What does it say in verse 8? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer, if you're someone who has professed faith in Christ, right in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
Matter of fact, in the same way, Jesus also declares in Matthew 28 that all authority will be given to him, that he has all authority, and he will be with you. So in fact, we know that the full power of God is with those who are believers. And in this very specific space, it says that Peter was filled with the Spirit. We know that believers have the the Spirit because of what Jesus says. We also know in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So if you're a Spirit of God, let me promise you this, because I can stand on the words of Jesus. If you are following him, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, resides with you in full power. And Luke 12, 11 through 12, is also a, a verse that foreshadows this very situation. Jesus tells them this. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you at the very hour what must be said. (laughs) You guys ever had a really important event or some kind of a presentation and you spent hours and hours in front of a mirror reciting over what you're going to say? Maybe an interview, you do mock interviews with friends or family. You're prepping it up and getting set. Jesus says, "Don't, don't even try to do that. The Holy Spirit's with you. Yeah, 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 study, learn, grow, read God's word, but the Holy Spirit himself will teach you at that very hour what must be said. And let that be an encouragement for you that you don't have to be super well prepped when you have a coworker or a friend or a family that just says, yeah, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Don't feel like you need to walk away from them and say, I need to study up. Can you give me some questions that I can answer? No, no, in the moment, let's trust the Spirit. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? That's kind of an important phrase. If all of us have the Spirit, is it a percentage of the Spirit? Are we just kind of hanging around with a little peace? Like, Holy Spirit can't be spread out too thin. I'm just going to be a little bit with Aaron right now, a little bit with Sharon, a little bit later. Oh, Ozelia really needs me. I'm going to fill her. (laughs) That was not, I'm just random. (laughs) Can y'all share some right now? I need it. No, in fact, really, what it's speaking towards, and maybe you have this testimony of yourself where you really feel the presence of God with you in a given moment. It's de- declaring what is reality for Peter, but that in a way he is fully submitting to and following and trusting in that spirit which God promises in him. He's filled with that spirit because he's not walking in the flesh. He's walking in obedience to how God's leading him. You know, throughout the text of Scripture, we see regularly that there's a war between, within us. That we are, both, we are both flesh, we are both body, we are human, and we are spirit. And that even Jesus mentions to his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Paul, Paul's like a, we, we think of him often as some kind of a super apostle. Maybe you don't, I grew up this way. You kind of picture like, how, who could be like Paul? He's up on a hill with a cape. He's just taking down bad guys for the kingdom of God. But in reality, he also says that what I want to do, I don't do. What I, do, what I don't want to do, I do it. A wretched body of flesh that I'm in, who will save me from this? I can't do it myself. He, he, he was at war 
against that flesh that we all have ourselves. It's that same phrase that we referred to much earlier where we talk about the already but the not yet. We are saved, but we are not fully glorified. We are being changed day after day, but nobody in here looks just like Jesus. I will say that with confidence. I only ask you to get, raise your hand if you think you're closer. I know I don't. In Galatians 5, 16 through 17, G, uh, P, Paul, excuse me, Paul refers to this very idea when he tells the Galatians who are wrestling with their salvation. Essentially, they've trusted God fully in Christ for salvation, but then they started to work on their own to try to keep and earn God's favor out of their own strength. And Paul says, listen, I say then walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. So each of us find ourselves in circumstances where we are we are embattled with our own flesh. But the, at the same time, God has promised to continue to strengthen us as we trust and follow after Him. If we don't feed our flesh, and this is the battle that we must face every day. As someone who is lost, someone who does not know Christ, someone who does not have the Spirit of God in them, then they have no other alternative but to battle that on their own. But for you and I who are in Christ, that Holy Spirit that's in us promises to strengthen us as we seek to obey God, that we don't have to give in and succumb to any temptation, that we can be right We can be good and righteous in the strength that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Charles Spurgeon, who was a well-known preacher of his time, preached before tens of thousands of people. And I actually find myself often doing this exact same practice. As he would ascend to his pulpit, he was known to say quietly to himself at each step he took, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 This truth was not lost on Spurgeon in his everyday life. He stated that without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without steeds. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. As an offering without the sacrificial flame, we are unacceptable. Believers, we don't truly rely on our own efforts. We do not have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. If the Spirit of God resides in you, He gives us the strength to follow and obey Christ. We need to trust in, listen to, and follow the Spirit of God that's in you. It's not about interpersonal skills. It's not about being charismatic. It's not about conversational skills. It's about trusting in and obeying and following the Spirit of God in you. John Piper, another pastor, has an acronym that gives him practical steps to walk in God's power whenever he opens up his Bible. It's also whenever he preaches. I sometimes do this too. You know all my little strategies and stuff. It has no, this acronym does not have a real word behind it, but it's APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. Easy to remember. This is the simple, I always remember it. This is the simple acronym and what it means. That first and foremost, he admits that he can do nothing without God. A, admit and acknowledge you can do nothing without God. P, pray for help. T, 
trust a specific promise. God has promised so much to us, and he has promised to be with us. Jesus has promised to be with us. He has promised the Holy Spirit and power with us. So T is trust in a specific power. A, this is the hard one, act. Act. Act in obedience. Act in faith. Just do. Recognize that you're not going to be perfectly prepared for any moment, but act in obedience. And then the final T, after it's all said and done, thank God for his provision and his goodness. Aptat. I'll give it to you later if you didn't write it down. And so then Peter, trusting in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and speaking out of what the Holy Spirit gives him to say, he declares the name and the power in which they do this. And what does he say? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom you raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. A bold kingdom witness testifies to Jesus Christ. Don't, 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 don't be deceived. In the church, if your witness does not involve Christ, it is incomplete. He speaks directly of what Christ has done. His power is what made this man whole. In fact, the word healthy there is not only a physical health, but it's a wholeness. It's also used for salvation. For Peter to say that what you see done is in Christ's power. And he uses Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who in here has a parent that when they got in trouble used your entire full name? Right? Yeah, you know your name because your parents use it all the time? Okay, I get it. They whip out that full name. Why do they whip out that full name? They're serious. They mean business. It's a big deal. It's a big issue. Peter does not want any confusion with the Sanhedrin on which one he's talking about. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. That's the guy. Remember him a few weeks ago? That guy. Peter has gone literally from on the defensive, he's on trial, to the offensive. And in this last verse, he actually puts the Sanhedrin on trial because he says this, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders which has now become the cornerstone. He quotes a well-known psalm that was often attributed by Israel to the Jewish people. And then we see in the early church that they regularly used it to talk about Christ. That he's the one that was being rejected and he's now the cornerstone. And then he, he finishes with this. There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So this is unequivocal, unequivocal. We, we, we cannot argue any further than this verse here that Peter declares there is no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved. This is the distinguishing mark for Christianity. If you have a conversation with anybody, when it's about Christ, it becomes unique. People will talk about God all day long. People will pray to a God all day long. They will often use verses and phrases like, we all worship the same God in a different way, but we do not all worship Jesus. And what Peter says is that there is no other name by, what, by which we must be saved. It is Jesus alone. This week while I was in uh, New Orleans, I had a, a few different conversations uh, around spiritual things. 
uh, spoke uh, with a guy at one particular restaurant, had an amazing po' boy. Mm. And there was nobody else. I'm by myself. So we talked up a little bit. Great conversation. Didn't come to the faith in Christ, but uh, encouraging, encouraged him, hopefully. Then I had another conversation later in the week um, with another gentleman, and it became a conversation about spiritual things, ancient stuff, history. I love this cool things like that, a philosophy. We talk, I talked about God in the Bible and paralleled it with a lot of things in, in, in the ancient world and Baal and all this stuff, and I was just going into it. Can I make a confession? I never mentioned Jesus. Was I being a bold witness at that moment? I was having a really cool conversation. but I never brought him to Jesus. Does that, does that mean I absolutely had to in that very, very moment? You can judge. I wish I had. But a bold kingdom witness has got to bring people to Christ. The conversation has got to be about him. And Peter tells us why in there in verse 12. Because there's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That the power of God is in Christ and that his death and resurrection is what saves people. That it's God who loves this world so much that he sent Jesus to save people. We can speak comfortably about God, but Jesus is the distinctive of Christianity to all other religions. Other religions often have a works-based righteousness. Islam And the Quran gives a long and detailed list of how to act, dress, think, and behave. And if you follow these instructions, Allah will approve you and you are more likely to be accepted into eternal bliss. Islam works according to the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Buddhists, they they have uh, four noble truths that they speak about. That suffering exists, that there's a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and that suffering ceases with the final liberation of nirvana, complete freedom, liberation, and non-attachment. And in order to end suffering, you must follow the eightfold path, which includes discernment, wisdom, virtue, morality, concentration, and meditation. All things you have to do. Hinduism says a form of salvation for the Hindu can be achieved in one of three ways, through the way of works, through religious duty, the way of knowledge, or the way of devotion, which is a devotion to a deity. Reflected in your acts of worship, both public and private. And then often in American Christendom, you're more patriotic than you're more holy. Jonathan Edwards talks about Christ, and he speaks about what we bring to our salvation in Christ. And he doesn't talk about works. In fact, he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And in John 14, 6-7, Jesus articulates exactly what Peter tells us when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So a bold kingdom witness testifies of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was put to death for our sin and who raised again from the death, from the dead. He's alive and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he desires all people to come into the kingdom. 
and he makes his appeal through us. And how often do we have people who might refute that? You will find yourself, like Peter, coming against opposition if you are a bold witness of Christ. They will oppose it in so many different ways and say, well, well, how can it be loving to have one single way to God? How can it be loving to have such an obscure various ways to God? He showed you the door, and it's Christ, the way in, the way to God, the way that he loves and knows you more, and it's through his son. So we know also the third characteristic of bold kingdom witness. As we bring the message of Christ, that bold kingdom witnesses will face opposition. Look at verse 13 to 22 first. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. First thing they said about them is, look, they're uneducated, they're not trained. What they're really talking about is they're not people who have been through the, through the advanced schooling of the Torah and the prophets. These guys are talking, they're fishermen. They're all fishing in boats, they don't have time. I actually heard this definition of someone who's a scholar, I didn't even know about this. The term, historically, is someone who has the leisure to study. I guess I did school wrong. <laughs> I didn't feel leisurely about my study. <laughs> but these guys didn't have time to study. They weren't advanced, educated men like them. But at the same time, look at their response. They were clearly trained by Jesus. They were amazed and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Guys, when Moses was in God's presence, his face radiated. The world can tell when you've been with Jesus. There are some incredibly well-trained and intelligent people who claim to know Jesus but are absolutely hateful, impatient, angry jerks to people they disagree with. The disciples of Christ will be known by their love for one another and by the fruit they display as the Spirit empowers their witness. My prayer is that every one of us, everyone who meets us, would hear our testimony of Jesus and recognize that we've been with him. That they would see him in us. And so the Sanhedrin had nothing to say to that. They were like, clearly, we have no ability to argue back at, these, at Peter and John right now. So what do they do? They say, hey guys, uh, get out of here. After they ordered them to leave, verse 15, the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through him, through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that we cannot deny it. But so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in his name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the Sanhedrin here are on damage control. They're opposing God's people. They're opposing Peter and John. Peter and John have an answer for them. They say this is work done in Jesus' name. Everybody has seen what was done. And guess what everybody's doing? They're glorifying God for it. Sanhedrin are thinking, no, no, no. We put this guy to death. We know what's best. We don't want them teaching more about this Jesus guy. And unequivocally, these Sanhedrin are walking in the flesh. They recognize what the signs are. They're concerned only with the status quo. And they're blinded by their, by their love for the world. They're blinded by their own honor and their own power. They're blinded by what they have and what they have to lose if Jesus is the Messiah. 
1 John, actually written by this John who is sitting on trial, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, says this, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Where Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin full of the Spirit, they're facing off with a Sanhedrin who loved the world. And they don't want to acknowledge what God is doing through Jesus. The lust of the eyes, or the flesh that John mentions is physical desires and pleasures of this world. The lust of the eyes are things that we see and we desire to have. The pride in one's possession, or often translated as the pride of life, is things like power, status, money, important things to us. And that's really primarily for, for the Sanhedrin, one of the probably central things. Their money, their power, their status, their position in the community is called into question by Jesus. And it's important to remember as we stand before people like that, that like Paul tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The enemy is not in front of us, but it's what's tempting. It's what's deceiving those people we see. The enemy are our spirits and principalities. Satan and all of his, his demons are at work. And we have to recognize that they oppose God and they continue to tempt and lead people like the Sanhedrin into fleshly desires, into pride in their own possession in their own life. And they continue, that's what we fight back against. The flesh is opposition to their through, the flesh is the opposition on the outside through people in front of us, and, and the flesh is also the opposition on the inside for us. I mean, think about Peter and John in this situation. They're pretty uncomfortable. Right, right, look, many of us are not going to stand in the middle of a Sanhedrin trial. Well, I probably will never stand in the middle of a Sanhedrin trial. But in this particular circumstance, they're literally brought in and changed. All these really important people are sitting in a half circle, like around them questioning them. You ever seen scenes like that? I'm trying to think of a good one. Probably, well, I'll go Star Wars or something weird like that, like the Congress. We're like looking all around. This is the important people are all around them watching and asking questions. <clears throat> and the very easy thing for them to do, and actually happened in the early church, is people would recant what they said for their comfort and for their safety, for fear. And for their own desire for comfort, for their own desire to not be thought lowly of, to be judged for their own safety, Peter and John could have said, okay, fine, we won't, we'll stop. And for you and I, that's a temptation every day, isn't it? To, to be silent for our comfort, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to face discomfort in this world. We're probably not physically threatened, but there are believers around the world that are, that their life is literally put on the line. We haven't seen videos like this in a long time, but we have seen videos of Christians lined up and beheaded and killed because they would not recant. It is not something old. It is something that's still current. And as the flesh op is in opposition to our own witness, we need to continue to follow after and obey the Spirit of God in us so that we can be a bold witness for the kingdom. And look what Peter and John answer when the Sanhedrin tell them to stop. They say this, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. 
talking about a bold witness. Peter's like, Peter was, back when Jesus was first put to death, Peter was, was denying him in front of like middle school girls. Like they were at around the campfire and there's some neighborhood kids were like, hey, aren't you, uh, weren't you with that Jesus guy? And he's like, oh, no, no, uh-uh, I don't think so. Mm-mm. We know the spirit of God is in Peter. We know that the resurrection has changed him because he is now standing in the midst of the leaders, the religious leaders, the ones with all power and authority in Jerusalem, and he is straight calling them out. He is boldly proclaiming that you've rejected Christ, and whether you think it's right for us to disobey God or disobey you, you decide. Because verse 20, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's changed them. And the only response that the Sanhedrin can have at that time is this. After threatening them further, they released them, and they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. As a man over 40 years old, I will tell you, there's a reason that they put this sentence in here. This is a man that has been lame from birth. And if there was any chance that he'd have some miraculous healing or just natural healing, 40 years old is not the point in which it would occur. Jesus, (laughs) through Peter and John, chose this man for this purpose to display his glory to a watching crowd and say, See this guy? You recognize him, right? It actually says he's been there every day. He's just hanging out in front of the temple. Over 40 years old, I feel heard. And Sanhedrin can't do anything about it. What are they going to do? Are they going to punish Peter and John for doing a good thing? Peter and John remain, look at how they do this. They remain respectful, but steadfast. They, they give respect to the crowd, to the Sanhedrin, but they are firm and resolute for Christ. They're not being provocative. They didn't pick a fight. They're being compliant as they can be, but they're honoring God over men when necessary. When the commands of men come into conflict with what God has asked us to do and to be, we have to follow their lead. It's without a doubt not a coincidence that Peter writes about this very thing in his first letter of chapter 3 of 1 Peter when he tells the people who are suffering under persecution, he says this who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness you were blessed, do not fear them or be intimidated but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is reiterating here exactly what he demonstrates in front of the Sanhedrin where he says that when you are accused, those who, who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And the Sanhedrin had nothing they could do. What is it that man could do to you who accused you when you were doing good for Christ? Nothing. Oh, can they harm your body? Yes, Scripture says they can. 
but we would rather stand before God doing good in the name of Christ than ever to do anything evil and claim it's for him. And so the final section after they get released, Peter and John go back to the rest of the disciples and we see this final piece that bold kingdom witness is strengthened through prayer. We're powered by the Holy Spirit and we pray he keeps doing it more. Look at verses 23 through 31. After they released them, they went uh, to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who has made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Their immediate response, they come back to their people, they share with them everything that God's done. The Holy Spirit has spoken through them, and the immediate response of God's people is to go together to God in prayer. To praise God for the work that he's done. To thank him. To be grateful to him. To recognize that it's only by his power that any of this is ever going to be done. They praise God, as you see in verse 24, for who he is. That he is the one who is the creator and he controls everything. So they go to him and say, God, praise you. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in it. And then they move on in verse 25 to this. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The king of the earth take their stand and their rulers assemble together against the Lord and against the Messiah. First and foremost, they acknowledge his power and his strength as the creator of the universe. And then they say, you already knew this was coming. They quote a psalm where it says the Gentiles and the people plot futile things against you. They acknowledge that God is not surprised by this. It's not catching him off guard. When someone comes to you and opposes you and does evil against you, God's not in heaven going like, whoa, what? Look at that. <laughs> He's not like me with a four-year-old. Whoa, didn't see that coming. <laughs> Four-year-olds are crazy. I got stories. They acknowledge that God's not surprised by this. And then they said, they, get, they pointed to specific cases in verse 27. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against God, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. That opposition came against Jesus as well. And it's not a small thing that they quote this particular psalm. It's Psalm chapter 2. You can read it yourself. This psalm says, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. But then it goes on to say that God places his king on his holy mountain, who will rule and reign. And in the very next phrase, he mentions your holy servant, Jesus. Because the church knows that's God's king. And and Psalm 2 is something of a, a psalm of desperate move by the world that they would rage against God's appointed Messiah because they don't have a chance against him. And it's not just the Gentiles like Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jewish people who are raising up against them, but it's all the enemies of God in this world who are raising up against Christ and God's Messiah. The opposition came against Jesus, so it'll come against us. When you stand as a bold witness for the kingdom, we can expect that, but God's not surprised by opposition. And God's ready, and he's strong enough to overcome. And we can be like the disciples, and we can pray to him for more strength. Look at verse 29. 
And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray for God to grant them boldness. We should pray for God to grant us boldness. It's not a last resort. It's our, it's our core strength and our foundation. That the Holy Spirit resides in us and that we are dependent on God's strength to do anything. And then in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. This is an amazing thing. When we trust Christ, when we believe God's promise, when we obey and act in alignment with what he's commanded, and we pray for him to give us the boldness to do it, God shows up. He's there. God is already present, and he shows himself to us as he works through us. And I promise you this, whenever I've tried my best to prepare for any kind of a weird conversation about the gospel, it's always stayed weird because I'm not good in my own strength. But when the Holy Spirit is working through you and you just trust him and just speak, it's the Holy Spirit that changes hearts and minds, not us. In fact, one of the stories that I often appreciate from Charles Spurgeon, and I feel myself at times, is that he would find himself reciting, I trust in the Holy Spirit, I trust in the Holy Spirit, and that there were times he felt like a sermon would just fall flat on its face and that nothing would happen. And he would often recall that that was just God reminding him that you need my spirit too. It can't be just you. It's not in your strength. It's only through me. And I always have to ask myself, in the moments that we fail, in the moments that we don't walk and live as we should, are we trusting in God's Spirit in us? Are we living boldly as a witness for the kingdom? Because God equips and empowers us to be bold kingdom witnesses as we trust the Holy Spirit in us. My prayer for all of us today, and, and I ask that all of us pray, even as we're wrapping up this morning, that we would pray for boldness from God, that his Holy Spirit would fill us as we leave this space, as we live our daily lives, and as, as we are witnesses for his kingdom, that he would do things that we can't explain. I always want that. I don't change people. He changes people. It almost I want to be caught off guard. I want you to be in a moment and say, you know, Jesus is king, and somebody's like, all right, I want to follow him. Well, what? We to see that happen day after day, and then we walk with people to follow after Christ because he is the one king, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful for this word. I'm grateful for Peter and John's testimony, for their witness, for the boldness they demonstrate for us, and I'm grateful, Lord, that you promised that same spirit to be in your people. Lord, give us the strength to trust you, Give us the boldness to speak even when we don't think we have the words, but to believe as you promised that your spirit will give us those words we need when the moment is right, when the time is right. Let us speak the words you give us. Let's trust the spirit in us and know that as things, as those 
those thoughts come to our mind, even as the Spirit speaks to us in this very, very moment, that there are ways in which we encourage the body, we encourage one another, that you work through your people in your spirit as we obey and trust you. Thank you, Father, for the way you've changed us today and continue to change us every day. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.